everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann. Today I'm talking to Doc Searles and Greg Bledsoe, who is the Chief Organizational Engineer at Unbounded Enterprise. And I'm going to let him tell you a little bit more about what that is. And uh, in the meantime, I wanted to say uh, we're glad to be back. We took a week off, but now here we are again. And please visit our website at reality2cast.com. That is the number two. We have a lot of extra information. I'm sure we will provide some pretty useful links with this episode. And uh, follow us on social media. We'll see you there. So Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. And really quickly, I wanted to add that you are also, uh, as Doc likes to say, one of the uh, Linux Journal in exile (laughs) people. (laughs) You wrote wrote a, a number of articles and I think... Uh, you wrote some geek guides too, didn't you? I did. I did. I wrote a couple of yeah. those. Uh, those were fun. All those were fun. Uh, writing yeah. for Linux Journal was fun. That was a nice phase of my my career and my life. Uh, just being just nerding and doing nerd things, uh, and you know, really being able to be head down into the technology. Uh, kind of moved. My focus has moved a good bit since then, but that was like a really really fun time for me. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed writing for Linux Journal. It was really quality. It was sort of kind of the gold standard of, uh, I feel like, operating system-based uh, journals. Uh, it was really like prestigious to me to be able to write there. It was. It was a, it was a, it was a great run. It was a long run too from, you know, yeah. uh, 94 to 19, basically. And you know, Actually, I had a couple of projects uh, in flight whenever the bad news came that the publication was going to cease. Uh, I had a couple of projects I was working on then. Yeah, well, it ceased twice. Um, the, the first time because That's we true. actually ran out of money, and then, and the second time because our benefactors who decided to save us uh, decided that right at the point when we were becoming really viable again uh, to kill it. So, yeah. Oh well. Sad yeah. story, but I, it's one that I, it's one that I share the sadness about. Uh, and I, there's, there's actually some rumblings that it may make a comeback. Uh, well, they're, it, they're doing it, some things to the credit of, I think it's Slashdot or whatever owns Slashdot now. Um, they have kept the archive alive and which to me is incredibly important. And, um, and they've kept, they've kept the lights on. It's, they're not hiring any of us old people, but, um, uh, the site is still there. It's still running on Drupal. <laughs> it's still, <laughs> although yeah. the version of Hopefully Drupal it's is running updated. on is end of life soon. So I'm like, I guess I'm starting yeah, I to know. get nervous. Oh I'm God. like, what if, what if they don't know? Somebody, the somebody archive that quick. Yeah. Uh, well, we've archived, archived it. The thing is that we, you know, I, uh, what I'm afraid of is, okay, yeah, so it's an archive and the internet archive has it too, but all of a sudden, all the, all those, all those links to it get 404. They all yeah. go away. And that to me is, incredibly important to keep that up and i hope yeah, they do be sad i hope somebody's listening and they you know yeah. um and they say hey look no we'll call call catherine if somebody else is willing to help i mean catherine you may be you may be too tired of it and i don't know no, no i mean actually that i i will say the upgrade path is not that bad from eight to nine is really not that bad if there's a if there's a message for the Drupal users out there it's nothing like it what it has been in the past. It's wow. it's um, a so much there's easier hope. process. Yeah, there's hope. Hey, it's not that bad. That's good to hear. Yeah. All right. So I guess I didn't really talk about uh, yeah, yeah, what I actually do now, or uh, 
what like what what my made up title means. Uh, I have a lot of I have a long history of made up titles. Uh, before this, I was a chief disruption uh, officer, uh, and you know, uh, so we, we you know I've got a it's kind of a thing for me is like you make up a title to describe because what I do is very cross boundary. Uh, you know, I kind of go wherever wherever things are broken, uh, and I fix that. Uh, it's the theory of constraints. I, I kind of am the theory of constraints in operation. I figure out what, what's holding us back, what's preventing us from executing, and I fix that. And that can be in any of the, the three domains we talk about in DevOps, uh, people, process, or tools. Uh, but it's always people first. And usually when it's the tools, it's because the tools were forced onto the people. Uh, so anyway, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, methodology around that. But uh, the unbounded enterprise part, so unbounded is a word that recurs in Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper uh, a few times, uh, which we at Unbounded are really big believers in the vision of the white paper. Uh, and it's our, it's our thesis, our operating hypothesis that cryptocurrencies are viable to the degree that they are uh, compatible with and following the, the principles laid out in the white paper. To me, the white paper is sort of like uh, Lockean social contract theory in that it's been a long time now and no one's really improved on it at all. Uh, mm. It's like, if, if anything, it's gone backwards. Uh, so the same thing is true, in my opinion, with, uh, with the, the white paper. It kind of was like pretty, it was pretty spot on. And most, almost all of the changes that you see to it uh, are, taking, are taking things backwards and not forwards. Uh, so so our, we're focused on the, the cryptocurrency that we believe is most closely following the white paper, the one that's most closely uh, focused on uh, pr producing value uh, and being uh, scalable and secure, uh, can it, volume, being able to handle volume, and that's the Bitcoin Satoshi version. Uh, and so Unbounded, uh, the name Unbounded Enterprise is kind of a hat tip to that. Uh, and our current focus is using uh, the power of micropayments uh, to unlock value that has currently been held out of the market because of the overhead of the payment infrastructure that you have to go to to conduct business on a global scale. Uh, so we, we think if you, if you, if you take the, the qualities of NFTs, uh, which really an NFT uh, is just a piece of data. Uh, it's an encapsulated piece of data that has some, some unique characteristic uh, which if you think about it, that's nothing new about that. Like your plane ticket is an NFT. It's a non-fungible token. Uh, your, your deed to your house is an NFT. Uh, you know, the NFTs can confer uh, rights or privileges. Uh, they can be authenticated to varying degrees. Uh, they can provide some assurance. Uh, you have official seals. Uh, so none of these concepts are new. This is just a new delivery mechanism for the kind of ideas. And when you combine that, the, the low friction, low overhead of, of uh, non-fungible tokens with micropayments, then you get all kinds of new interesting possibilities, which really do converge around a lot of Doc and mine uh, shared interest in uh, privacy and in uh, the value, business value being unlocked, uh, but not by uh, invasive uh, you know, mind reading uh, technology, which wants to follow you everywhere and know everything about you. Repeat for me what, what an, what an NFT is. That, that struck me as one of the more 
persuasive things that I've heard, but I couldn't repeat it. So you repeat it for me and maybe the listeners will hear the same thing. Sure. So the, the non-fungible just means it's unique in some way, that mm-hmm. it has some kind of uh, property that it can't be just substituted for another. Like a dollar is fungible. Any dollar is as good as any other dollar. Serial numbers may be different, but they have exactly the same properties and value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so non-fungible just means that it does not have that property. So it's unique in some way. And a token means that it is a uh, swappable commodity that has, uh, you know, encapsulates some data, some mm-hmm. information. Uh, so it just means unswappable data of some kind. Okay. Uh, and, and the concepts relate most closely to things like the deed to your house or a concert ticket or, uh, you know, anything can be you it, like there. We're surrounded by them. Right. Any any kind of unique data is really uh, an NFT. OK, so and so how does this relate to micropayments? You, you've got a so. The reason that uh, you're seeing the only reason, the only real usage you're seeing, at least as far as the media, the the larger media is aware of, uh, is large sales. And this this goes back to kind of the the hodl narrative of Bitcoin B- BTC, uh, that the this block should be small, volume should be low, transactions should be large. Uh, and so it doesn't make sense to to like sell a one dollar NFT if you're on a uh, medium where because of competition to get your transaction written to the blockchain, you have to spend $30. Uh, that's worse than the old payment infrastructure. Mm. Uh, so if you can have a transaction for say a thousandth of a cent, uh, then the, then you have a lot of new possibilities unlocked. A lot of people that have been locked out of the market because of the 25 cents plus three cents uh, cost of you know, 25 cents plus 3% that cost of doing business to have any sort of a financial transaction, they are now unlocked from the market. And so if you think about the number of things that could not be individually priced and sold because of the overhead of transaction price, and if that, if you can make that go away, you've actually unlocked trillions of dollars worth of value. And now many people can be adequately compensated for their work that really couldn't be before that had to go through a a middle person that had that, that transacted at a volume enough to overcome that overhead. Okay. And, and so your, your business or what you're imagining with this is, is what exactly? So we think the first place, so I know I just exploded a lot of heads. I just threw a lot of like information out there that is like, that's a lot to take in. Like a lot of things that people have never thought of. And uh, we're, we know that we are ahead of the market right now. The market is not ready to come to grips with what this can mean for the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, it, what I think economically it will have to mean for the future. It's almost inevitable. It's economically inevitable. Uh, like open source. The reason I jumped right on that open source bandwagon is because I thought it was economically inevitable. I have the same spider, tingly spider sense about, about this as well, uh, that it is economically inevitable. Uh, but we believe that the ideal vertical to penetrate first is actually gaming because Hmm. gaming, you have a lot of sort of use cases for NFTs. Uh, You have a lot of, you have 2.7 billion people that play online games and on that and spend money on online games. 
and they're ideal sort of uh, first adopters of new technologies. So if you can maybe, if you can say, and also gaming is sort of a pyramid where you have a few players that make a lot of money and then a lot of players that make no money. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very difficult to make a game and actually get enough compensation to make it worthwhile. Uh, Very few people are actually making games and being compensated enough to keep doing it, even if the game is good because there's a lot of competition and because of the overhead of payments and because the payment infrastructure is around, like, say, uh, Apple Pay and uh, like uh, the Google in, you know, those sorts of those sorts of uh, structures that most people are locked out of. Uh, they, they, they force you to jack up your prices to the point where things maybe have, you can't provide enough value to justify those kinds of purchases. Uh, so we think we can go in and provide a way for creators, for uh, game creators, for artists who are, you know, there's a thing called the unity store where 3d models are available for purchase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's piracy there is a big problem of people buy download repackage and resell the the assets uh so if if you can it's also a big problem so you don't really know your asset can be being used out there and you don't really know you don't get compensated someone's making money off of it but you don't get compensated so with nfts you can make that problem kind of go away uh because you can always track back to the origin uh through uh the, the data structure uh through signatures uh, and 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 a comp- and a creator can be compensated directly. Let's say you can put it out there on your on a on a, a an NFT market. Put your uh, your models, your 3D models, or your your images, or whatever it is that you have, and you can put it out there at a price which makes it attractive. Uh, and it can be resold more than one time, and you get a cut automatically because it's just handled by the technology. Uh, so so these kinds of solutions, as well as uh, for game creators directly to have interchangeable items that are saleable and swappable uh, for, uh, you know, a, a user to be able to use an item and if they don't like it, just sell it and get something for it so they can go and buy another item. Uh, trade Trades, I mean, there's just so many possibilities here uh, that when you, when, you, when you bring in the combination of this kind of uh, immutable ledger uh, and times st- an immutable timestamp ledger where you always know when everything happened with uh, micropayments, which reduce the friction of actually sending money to and fro. Because if you remember um, the original white paper talks about an electronic peer to peer cash system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was meant for casual payments. That was the whole idea. So, so I'm imagining this world where, you know, I play whatever game it is and I've built up my character to be level a million and, and not, now I want to sell it or something like that. I mean, is that, is that the yes. scenario we're talking about or literally any, any kind of digital asset you might trade in a game? Um, yes. And that, the, that does make sense to me, actually. But so, but when, when you start trying to translate that into things that other, you know, outside of gaming, like for example, oh, I don't know, sending money to podcast creators. <laughs> Imagine that. That's a great Imagine idea. Imagine that. So there actually are platforms being built right now that are actually in operation that are disrupting that ad tech uh, model by allowing you to uh, allowing your interactions to actually be micropayments, 
where every minute of a video you watch every or a podcast you listen to is a penny or something like that. Uh, and or every like and uh, retweet or not, it wouldn't be a retweet on the other platform. There's a platform called Twitch where you, your, your like and share actually tips the person you're liking and sharing. So there's actual real money behind it. So, uh, so, uh, okay. So l- let me ask in, um, this goes back to like 08, 09, early on with Project VRM, my, my project at uh, Berkman Klein Center, which is still active. We got, you know, 570 participants in it. We came up with this idea we called Emancipay. And the idea behind Emancipay is I should be able at my end to have a means by which I can offer to pay whatever I want for whatever I want and they can accept it or not, but it's going to be laying out there for them to take. Uh, if they wish, the original idea with this had to do with public public broadcasting. Um, I actually convened a meeting, and I think it was in '07, where I, as my first acquaintance with the awesome convening power of the Harvard name, I said, "Hey, I'm going to have a meeting here. We're going to talk about funding public radio in a better public broadcasting in a better way, where where the where where the the listeners and the viewers could, when they wished, by whatever means they wish, pay whatever they want without any friction." Um, and it could go to some, you know, uh, uh, collection society like sound exchanges for, for broadcasting, for, for webcasting. But basically, I'd have the means by which I would say I have, let's say I'm going to pay $200 a year um, uh, to, I'm in Charlotte, I'm going to to WFAE, I like WFAE, I'm going to, you know, or to, just to, to public, whatever whatever I'm listening to. And I would log that. I would have my own way of logging what I'm actually listening to and when. And I get a little report on it that's mine. And I would put, I would escrow in a, in a, in a place that money. And it would say, okay, 40% of it's going to go to WFAE. And some of it's going to go to South Carolina Public Broadcasting. Some of it's going to go uh, to WWOZ in, mm-hmm. in New Orleans because I listened to some music on there. And we actually created something called Listen Log that did this on the public radio player, which is done by PRX. Um, and this is based on having talked, having given a lot of talks in, in which I asked how many, and this is in Cambridge, Mass., right? So how many people here listen to public radio? Every hand goes up, right? How many of you pay, you know, 10%? How many of you would pay if it was real easy? It goes up to 20%. How many of you would pay if it not only was real easy, but if they turned off the begathon that they have two times a year where they turn off the programming for a few days and, and beg for money, even more hands went up. And I thought, okay, there's friction here. If we eliminated the friction, and we called this emancipate, but here's the key thing about it. it. All the major mechanisms were on the individual side. There wasn't a platform in the middle. There didn't have to be a platform in the middle. And I, mm-hmm. I've come to the belief that one of the problems we have with the web um, and the client-server model that we chose to develop the web on we didn't have to use that, but we did. It's a mainframe model, basically, mm-hmm. where we're all the dumb terminals. We need a platform in the middle that's going to do all this stuff for us. But all the platforms compete, and they turn into silos, and we're kind of screwed. And what I'm wondering is if in your scheme, what you're working on here, that kind of independence for you and me is possible. I believe that we are on the verge of that. I believe it's very possible, but I believe there are a lot of entrenched players who, will, who would really, really not like that to happen. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of payment. I mean, if you look at who invested in Blockstream, which kind of took over the Bitcoin core, uh, uh, you know, one of the first things that when Blockstream was invested in by MasterCard, one of the first things they started to do was remove the smart contracts, uh, which would let you do exactly what you're talking about. Basically, a, with, a, with, a, with a smart contract on chain that can auto execute under certain conditions, uh, you can have an API track for you how much of a certain service you use and automatically send payments back and forth. Uh, that kind of stuff is exactly capable. I mean, we're, we're on the verge of all of this kinds of idea being a re reality. But once again, you were just too far ahead of the curve, Doc. Uh, you were, you, yeah, you envisioned like a world that the world so was not ready to become 14 right? years so far, but here's yeah. a, but here's a question though. It is, it, will it never be ready? That, that is sort of like the key well, question for me. I think we're, it's more ready now mm -hmm. than it, than it, than it has ever been. And I, I see us getting unbounded enterprise where we think it could be. We believe that the, the economic inevitability of micropayments is going to turn, is going to create say a trillion dollar market in 10 years. Uh, I think that's almost inevitable. Uh, now, whether that gets sort of co-opted by entrenched forces or whether it actually becomes a force that empowers regular people is going to depend on how regular people engage with it and whether or not we can build enough platforms that model this usage uh, before uh, it becomes uh, totally co-opted. I mean, most crypto out there has been co-opted and crippled. Uh, and so is not really, and, and you have these narratives that make zero economic sense, like Bitcoin is digital gold. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, and then you, then you have a lot of FOMO and then you have a gold rush mentality. Uh, and then you have a lot of scams and then everybody gets turned off. And now everybody think any thinking person thinks crypto NFTs rolls their eyes. But I think there's, it's, it's, it's very much like the first dot-com uh, bubble where, here's, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, here's a weird thing about that because I, I, I love the, where you're going with this. There, there's a couple of thoughts that occur to me. One is, um, I think all of us know either that, we, either we know people or we know that there are people who are sitting on, if they were to sell it, many millions and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of bitcoin alone right but they're mm -hmm. but they're living in a shack or they're just you know they're they're living the same modest way they always did it's completely unlike say before the dot-com boom and all these people are buying expensive sconces mm -hmm. and they've got a lot of free money from vcs and 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 jacked up you know valuations yeah. on the stock market because they went public yes. these are but but these are people, I mean, that is fungible stuff. They may not be funging it right now, and they may be watching it go up and down. But they're way ahead of where they were when they when they put $200 into it in 2008. Well, are they, and, though? The but, real but test will come. The real test comes about that, because the, the, there's, there's a look that you get with, with, with some of these people, I think, and I, I'm projecting a little bit, that that's a little bit like you get with celebrity. You know, when... If you ever see a celebrity on the subway or on the street, they look like they're they're hunted a little bit, yeah. you know, because they have no anonymity. These yeah. people do have anonymity, but not total anonymity because their friends may know or they may not know it, so it's weird. But you're saying maybe it's not, that value is not what we think it is. So right? is the, it? the real question is, okay, so first and foremost, one of the things that has happened with uh, BTC, uh, which is what most people think of as Bitcoin, 
And the same thing is true for most other, uh, most other things like Ethereum or any, a lot of the other uh, projects uh, is that you can't actually do anything with it. Uh, and right, so, and, and, and have, there's no number, it might be worth right. something, but I, there's know, no actual, it's paper wealth because it, it, it's, I mean, you know, the drill with startups, you, you may have a certain amount of paper wealth, mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't like turn necessarily turn into lifestyle mm-hmm. until there's liquidity. There has to be a liquidity event, mm-hmm. right? So you have to somehow withdraw the dollars that are just paper wealth. Uh, and that's not always possible. Sometimes you, you, sometimes you hold on to that, hoping that that paper wealth will grow and then it evaporates overnight. And it's, just, and it are sometimes you have a certain amount of options at a certain valuation. Uh, but then, uh, there's never, there's never anybody going to buy that from you. Uh, mm-hmm. so there's, so it, it just, just monopoly money until there's liquidity. So if you look at the way the exchanges work, there's most of that trading is done in, in what's a quote unquote stable coin called tether. Uh, and there is not enough dollars in the system to support withdrawing that into a usable currency. Mm. So if you were to, ch- so if, if everyone was to run on all of it at once, it'd be a, 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 uh, not a, even a, all of it, a very tiny percentage of it. In fact, you'll, there's a, there's a, so there's a coincidental thing that happens that makes one scratch one's head where a lot of times when people go to withdraw, uh, uh, you know, even just tens of thousands of dollars of uh, BTC into dollars, uh, their accounts are suddenly under investigation. Uh, right. Uh, so there's right. like, and, and the whole HODL narrative is that you buy it, but you never sell it. Um, okay. okay. So that's like the narrative is that you shouldn't actually sell it. You should just, it's going to continue to grow and Bitcoin's going to be, a hundred thousand and a million dollars a coin. Uh, but, and, but this is covering up the fact that if someone, if one of these whales were to actually try to cash out a billion dollars worth of BTC, it would crash. The price would crash instantly because there's, first of all, there's not enough liquidity, not enough buyers. There's not enough liquidity. Uh, and so there's, there's, it, there's underlying problems with this whole market. And the, and the real problem is that you can't do anything with BTC. The chain is not functional. It's limited to five to seven transactions per second globally. And then you have these, these solutions that they're, these other solutions are trying to put on top of it, like Lightning, um, like SegWit destroyed uh, the real value of blockchain because it's because the whole idea is to have sig- a, a, a sequential set of signatures that you can audit all the way back to the beginning. And SegWit destroyed that. Uh, with the SegWit upgrade. And then the idea is that you would, uh, now you don't actually, only your settlements are written onto the chain. So you open these outside the chain channels, nobody, the money goes all over, nobody knows where it is, and then it's written back to the chain. But now guess what you lost? You lost all that transparency and all that auditability. You lost the whole timestamp ledger. So why do you need a blockchain to start with? Um, so, and Lightning is not functional. Uh, there's a lot of uh, hoopla, there's a lot of talk about what's going on in El Salvador, but the real, if you watch the videos of the people on the ground there, it's, this is there, there's a lot of implementation problems and it's causing a lot of problems for people who actually live in El Salvador and just want to like buy, you know, rice or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of problems there. There's a lot of paper wealth. And, and to me, this, there's a lot of analogies here to that first dot-com uh, bubble where you had, you know, uh, and ironically, 
you had some a lot of the some of the same people who pioneered the number one put it on the internet number two question mark number three profit business model are also involved in pumping up uh, BTC the price of BTC and telling people to buy it and never sell it and so there's a I mean there's a lot of problems in this in this market and and I think people are skeptical and they should be because there's no actual utility there and people will people will not really keep thinking people are going to have trouble really buying in until they see actual utility. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the theory behind uh, BTC utility is that it's going to be a hedge against inflation because it's digital gold. Scarcity makes it, it's scarce. Gold is scarce. Therefore it's digital gold. But the the analogy doesn't hold up because gold actually has a necessarily non-zero value because you actually do things with it. Because if you, in your cell phone, there's a certain amount of gold because there's a certain amount of platinum. So these metals necessarily can't go to zero. But BTC, there's actually nothing you can really do with it so that its value actually could go to zero at any time uh, because there's no there's not a necessary market for it. So the value so it so the, if, if you accept that you the utility of a thing is its value and the scarcity affects that because of supply and demand, then you start to understand what an actually valuable blockchain would look like. It would be a blockchain that you could actually do things with that provide you actual utility. Uh, and so I don't think that there are very mm. many blockchains out there that actually meet that uh, criteria. Well, there are, but they're not ones that have financial aspects to them. They're just uh, distributed databases that are that perform distributed database functions. There are a lot right now around um, distributed identity, distributed digital identity, mm-hmm. um, DIDs, DIDs. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had other uh, podcasts about those, but they're, but that's a happening thing. Real mm-hmm. companies like Microsoft and others are... I think Microsoft's involved in that. Maybe they're not, but anyway, they're, but they're, they're substantial and and they're you know financial institutions, credit unions, uh, credit card companies. They're involved in the conversation around self sovereign identity and especially with, with, um, and lately with DIDs, you know, which, which is a, a different way to do identity. But it's not about money. I mean, obviously, companies. Right. If if it work, if it's a way to reduce friction in the marketplace, which it is, you know, which is. I don't have to give you my ID in the sense that I'm presenting mm-hmm. a card. I give you a verifiable credential. That's all you need to know. You need to know I'm yes. over 18. I could go in the bar. Less friction that way, right? So, These actually are NFTs, by the way. Okay, good. Tell me more. When, uh, so this is, a, this is a perfect use case for a formal NFT uh, implementation because these are the characteristics that you want from NFTs. Uh, you have a, a trustless but verifiable uh, mechanism for proving something. Like I am who I say I am. And I could have a, now I could have different aspects of my identity that I want to prove at different times that I uh, work for a certain company, but I don't necessarily want you to know my identity. So I have an NFT that is signed by the company's private key and my private key that lets you know, that lets you certify that that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, think about, you know, a LinkedIn profile. There's a lot of people out there who say they, who have on their LinkedIn profile, they work at a company. How do you know that? Mm-hmm. Right. What if you had a what if you had a, an easy way to verify they actually do what they say they do? They actually have done what they say they've done. They mm-hmm. actually are who they say they are. So these right. are these are distributed identity kind of properties. And they're it's a perfect use case for a, sort of a, a formal, uh, widely available, scalable and u- usable and affordable uh, blockchain NFT implementation. I want to go back for a second to. Uh what we were talking about with, with Emancipay, because what we taught, what we, we, we didn't go into micropayments then simply because there was no way to do it. Right. And, and now exactly. you're saying there is, 
But we were talking about micro-accounting, and that's actually what happened on the individual side, that we have mechanisms for, for keeping track of the small amounts of, say, time. I mean, you could take, yes. you know, and there are tools for this right now. Rescue time is a way to see what you've been actually doing on your computer in order to spend less time on Facebook and stuff like that and, and put your, keep your nose to your spreadsheet grindstone. But there, but there, I, I can easily see some sort of marriage between micro accounting, which nobody's doing, especially right now, except in a mm -hmm. sort of scattered way. Uh, although I, I suppose your calendar is a way of micro accounting, but there's no way, no way to accumulate what you've actually done there and stuff, but it's, it's a, an instrument. Um, and, and micropayments when they're made simple and easy. And so that's sort of where you're going, I guess, right? It is. I mean, you, there's, so many, there's so many more reasons to calculate micro applications of time if you can give a commensurate payment for that amount of time. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, the, the voluntary aspect of I'll let you track how, how much I tweet or how often I read, like, so this is the, the, the thing that I reached out to Catherine about uh, originally was like the idea of an engagement platform where, you know, you, like you, you're, you're hooked into an, an API for your, your uh, platform, whether that be, uh, you know, YouTube or uh, Twitter or whatever. And you say uh, for every, if you listen to a hundred minutes of our podcast, then uh, we'll, you get some NFT award. Like maybe it gives you mm -hmm. VIP access to resources. Maybe it gives you, uh, maybe, you know, you get something, right? Maybe it even translates in, maybe it's even redeemable for a physical item, like a t-shirt or a hat or something, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, there's these, these engagement thresholds that you can set that could then be tracked automatically through APIs and through, through software that's uh, totally frictionless uh, that then increase your engagement with your audience. Uh, you know, and I think as a cost per engagement, it could be, it could just be beat the pants off anything that exists right now. Let me ask a, an off the wall question is we've talked a lot in by we, I mean, you know, by, my cabal, my project VRM cabal about intent casting. Intent casting is the opposite of, of advertising It's what the, it's what the, customer advertises out to the marketplace saying, mm -hmm. you know, I need a stroller for twins downtown um, uh, in two hours who's coming through. Is, could that be an NFT of a sort? I'm just wondering. I mean, is that, is that intention as, as something that could sit out there in the marketplace? So could I don't see I any don't reason know. why not, right? It's like a marketplace. It's like a buy order on a marketplace. Yeah, that's what Now your, your yeah. buy order is uh, sort of, is, is kind of an NFT already. Uh, because it's a, it's not, it's, it's unique to you. Uh, it is non-fungible for another, but someone else's buy order. Uh, and it encapsulates the data, but right. the data is your intent, your willingness to purchase at a particular price. So in my opinion, that already is an NFT and absolutely could be uh, amenable to a formal NFT implementation in software. Interesting. That's interesting. Oh. I like that idea of a of indelible <laughs> yeah. symbol of one's intent that, you know, it's not. And think about now, now, let me, let me throw another rock in the pond and a few more ripples here. Uh, now imagine that you can't take it back, right? One of the reasons why payments are so expensive is because of chargebacks, because mm -hmm. a certain number of the transactions that happen, people are going to say that wasn't me. 
uh, I didn't actually, that's what, that was, that's fraud, right? But now what if this was signed with a private key that is provably yours and only you have access to, uh, and it's been out there for a while and you, now you can't say that wasn't you, you put the order out there, the order was fulfilled. There's no chargeback now. So prices actually go down. The prices of items go down. The prices of, uh, the transactions go down. Uh, and this is one of the, the lessons of DevOps uh, that that I brought. So my, the bandwagons I've jumped on were first open source, second cybersecurity, third DevOps, and now uh, blockchain. Uh, and I guess in within that kind of NFTs. Uh, and the the thing that I learned in DevOps is that when transaction cost is low, you can do more things because a deploy, a software deploy, is like a transaction. And when that cost is high and it's painful, then you don't do it very much. And so you don't try as many things. And the things you do try, you have to redo. Because you don't do it that much, you're not very good at it. Now, if you can drive that transaction cost towards zero, the closer you get it to zero, the more the closer you can get to doing an infinite number of things. You can, And, and the more things you try, you know, the 10,000-hour rule has been kind of replaced with the uh, the 10,000 experiment rule where it's you have to do enough things to be able to find the, the few things that are actually going to work the way you think they will, because most things won't. So that driving down of the transaction cost is absolutely critical to unlocking human potential, in my opinion. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's absolutely critical to raising the standard of living for more of Earth's populist, in my opinion. So that's a grand vision, and I know that. Uh, and I'm a bit of an idealist, and I know that too. But, but I really think that we, we're, we're on the precipice of a time when we could start to realize that. Or we could go backwards towards a new Stone Age. You know, <laughs> who, I can't predict the future, but, but I think it's possible. I think it's kind of within our grasp. I'm wondering, so I don't know if this is a, solv- if this is, this is a problem that's solvable with your the schemas you're rather than the scheming, so it might be both uh, that that you're definitely talking about both here. Um, so I was at a Home Depot a couple of weeks ago, getting something, and it was this. Um, literally, I think it was a. It was a. Uh, oh, I remember. I, I I was looking for a drill. I, I wanted, and I told the old guy there. I said, "Look, I I just moved in here. I just I need the cheapest possible drill so I can use it as a screwdriver or as a drill." I'm not going to use it many times, but I do need one. And he said, here, you know, and he got it out of a cage, right? And um, and uh, and I went and I, I did the self-checkout and I walked out with it. But before that, he said to me, he said, and I forget why, but he said, I $10,000 worth of inventory gets stolen every day from this store. Walks out. And he says, I sometimes see people walking out with stuff that I know they're not paid for but I can't intercept them. I'll get fired for that. And that's because the cost in legal fees, in hassle, in court costs, whatever else uh, is involved, didn't used to be that way, but it is now, right? Yeah, right, you know, yes. Um, uh, of, of intercepting that person and running the risk that maybe they didn't steal it, right? And now you right. get sued for, you know, whatever it might be. False arrest. Yeah, Um yeah, or just even false accusation, you know, uh, you targeted me because you profiled me in some way, whatever it might be. But my point, though, is what if everything carried with it a property that where the ownership transfers to yes. from one party to the other? 
hundred percent. Is that an NFT-ish kind of thing? It is. It's very much so. So, so, so it's sort so. of like a second self, uh, for those of you not watching, which is everybody. I'm using my hands here. I, I, I really, <laughs> you know, I know. I keep doing the same thing. I, I, I keep it, seeing your, myself on like making hand it, motions. It's but, your ghost. Yes. It's, you know, um, um, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, so it's like I talk with my hands. The There's a, um, uh, uh, you know, but but it's sort of like, a piece of property that you own has two instantiations. One is digital and one is physical, right? And it's the digital instantiation of that that gets transferred along with it. And so like, so if you walk out of the store and you don't have the digital instantiation of this thing, then you didn't pay for it then because that's the total it, transaction. Right? If the transaction is a private, is a signing with a private key that can't be forged or guessed, mm-hmm. that it's cryptographically secure, then there's a then then there's no question about whether this was whether you own it. Now I, I think it's possible we could get to a point where literally every physical thing has a corresponding NFT that is signed. A pro, multi-sig uh, solutions are kind of out there for signing it by the store signed off that you bought it. You signed off that you bought it. Now you own it. And if that's not true, you don't own it. There's a, you have to now the burden is on you to prove you actually own this. Uh, now it's possible that you could something could have happened, and you could say, "Okay, here's the here's the video of me actually paying for it. Something went wrong. I don't know why your system didn't work." Blah blah blah. But what if we could all get the comp? This, the odds of that could be very low if we all get it basically instant confirmation on these transactions. Yeah, yeah. That's it's I'm actually almost imagining that it might even be the kind of thing where, okay, you know, when they're checking you out, you know, you're scanning a barcode. It mm-hmm. could be, and that's how it's done now. They just point the barcode reader at something. and then, But I'm wondering if it could be given that second self at that moment, right, that when you're checking out, where it leaves the store with a digital self along with a physical self, even if it's not detectable on the thing itself, right, as long as that barcode is there. Yeah, um, 100%. Uh, but, or if for that matter... That- you could slap a separate QR code on it that, you know, or you as a customer could carry your own in your wallet or your purse or something. Here, here are a pile of QR codes that I slap on the things that I buy that make them mine, right? And so, yes. and then Home Depot could scan that as well. So, yeah, we agree on that. You got one, I got one. It, it's leaving here and now we have, but there's a digital self for the thing that's living out there. This, by the way, is very close to, um, and maybe even identical to Picos. You've heard of Picos? P-I-C-O-S, Persistent not. Compute Objects. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, at picolabs.io, uh, I think it is, uh, P-I-C-O Labs, um, uh, at uh, Brigham Young. That's where where the code is, you know, that's where the, the .org is. Uh, I've thought for years that if I wanted, if I was, half or a third of my age, I would go into that business. Um, I, that, so the, yeah. the, the, the thing is all there's, there's so many of these sorts of visionary solutions to real problems out there, but they lacked a unifying way, uh, a universal or universally available way to implement them. That was practical and achievable and, you know, had, but, but now that blockchain exists, if you implement block, if a proper blockchain that's described by the white paper gives you a mechanism to do all of these things, 
you, you can implement all of this on a public ledger, right? And the public part is super important to really the, to, to the value of it, where there's economic incentive for people to, uh, you know, continue to, to participate. There's economic incentive to mine. There's economic incentive to process transactions. There's economic incentive to be honest, uh, there it's a, you know, the a consensus driven mechanism where bad actors are quickly identified and it rooted out of the system, right? Like what if we could identify, what if we had a system where we could identify a pir- someone who pirated someone else's work and they could be excluded from that exchange forever. Yeah. Uh, you know, those, we, we could have that. We could see those kinds of mechanisms come into existence with things like persistent, uh, objects. There's a, I'm, I'm wondering, so I wrote a piece, um, this, by the way, is nothing original with me, it's stuff I accumulated as a journalist from other people on double-entry bookkeeping a few years ago, and which is, which really is what it, I mean, double-entry bookkeeping was invented by Venetian um, uh, merchants back in the Middle Ages. I mean, uh, uh, Marco Polo used double-entry bookkeeping, and and uh, Luca Pacchioli codified it in, in a in one of the first books written in the vernacular uh, on, and printed by a uh, by Gutenberg Press in 1492. And if you read it today, that is in fact double entry bookkeeping is taught today. Yes. It's no different. Exactly. Um, but in some ways, it got lost. And uh, as soon as we started using QuickBooks and changed the language, and there. We kind of went into sort of single entry model, um, and I don't purport to understand double entry bookkeeping as well as a lot of other people. But there's something about something close to where we're ta- the zone we're talking about right now, where both parties understand what happened. Yes, right? there's th- so there's a, the ledger. Me, I'm going to throw a term at happened. you. I, I I know exactly where you're going. I mean, yeah. look, double entry accounting enabled the world to make leaps forward. Yeah, uh, that's and, the case. Yeah. And and now we are in a place where we can have triple entry accounting. Where say it's, more, say more it's, about that. It, that's interesting. Okay. The triple entry accounting is an actual concept. I can't. I, it'll take me a minute to drag up the the link to the paper that uh, the author. Uh, uh, the, I had a really interesting conversation with the author of that paper not long ago uh, about triple entry accounting and how this can enable us to make more leaps forward of the same sort. Uh, the transparency, the understanding, the 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 auditability, like all of these properties can enable us to make more leaps forward. Uh, mm-hmm. And and the concept, we, we probably don't have time to really get into it in depth, but it, the concept is triple entry accounting. Uh, and it's a it's it's three entries instead of just the two, just not just the credit, not just like I have an entry, you have an entry, but there's a there's a public entry. Mm. I just that's verifiable in the by chat anyone about that. So. Um... Carpel Rana, Carpel Rana wrote a That's not the author that I was, yeah, was, was uh, that I mentioned, but I'm sure that this, uh, this term Look is up, getting folks. around now. Triple yeah, entry I, accounting. I'll try to find it and I'll, I'll try to provide you a link that you can have before uh, uh, okay. go time with the podcast. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> 10 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we need it now. It's happening in real time. <laughs> exactly but that's, not. that's interesting because I mean, if you have, I mean, I certainly think that that's a way, I mean, there's so many ways that, uh, God, we had long talks earlier today, uh, which is why these headphones are like sweating off my head at this point, because <laughs> I've been doing them all day long. But um, 
about how every every great every great new technology has bad uses. They all do. They always do, right? You know, and uh, we'd never get along with that email at this point, And ninety nine point X percent of it is spam, right? But you know, mm -hmm. we invented it. It's totally useful. And um, we kind of moved on from it too. I mean, we have we like Slack and real time too, chat stuff that kind of make, we use email less. At least I think that's true. I think that's uh, but, but I, you know, I'm I'm sentimental about it because it's open standards and yeah. any it, it's NEA. You know, any yes. nobody owns it. Everybody could use it. Anybody can improve it. And um, that's not true with all of the chats. They're all that's owned absolutely by somebody. that's that's true. Yeah. However, anyway, uh, but. It seems to me like maybe it's the triple entry accounting, maybe it's just some variant of the stuff we've been talking about. That um, uh, there's there's actually hope against fraud. There's hope against theft. There's hope against a lot of other stuff because when you're when you're buying something or selling something, there is actual transfer of ownership that's trackable and auditable and 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 legit, inherently legitimate, and and that legitimacy can have a persistence to it because it's kept on a, on a ledger that's uh, distributed. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the most powerful, the most powerful and potentially revolutionary aspects of blockchain actually aren't the payments portion, but the data port, the data layer, mm -hmm. a shared time stamped global ledger uh, that goes back to the beginning of the chain. It's mm -hmm. unalterable. It's immutable. Uh, you know, that this, this is the most powerful aspect. And this is, I think, where once, I mean, the payments make the economic incentive uh, so powerful that it, it has to be adopted, mm -hmm. at least if you do it correctly. Yeah. Uh, and the, but, but it's the data layer. It's the shared data layer that I think is the most revolutionary. The thing that's going to change the lives of uh, two generations from now, the most is uh, or that has the potential to anyway, is the shared data layer. That's interesting. The shared data, data layer. It's almost like a new, the, the new, it's the, it may be the real, the real geology of the internet. I, well, we, we think of it, one of the ways we think of it is like uh, internet 4.0. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but, but like the under, the underlying uh, geology of the internet, I think I, I've actually never heard that. That I really like that. That's fascinating. I'll try to credit you as long as I remember where I got Go that for from. It. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a geology freak, so I see it in everything. But I, I'm always looking at the lower layers of everything. You know, yes. there, there's the, um, um, uh, the, the Long Now Foundation has this wonderful drawing called Layers of Time that has at the bottom, um, I think it's uh, uh, nature. Um, uh, Oh Christ, I don't remember. But anyway, but, but there's infrastructure and then um, business and then fashion at the top, and they all move at different speeds. But um, but there's oh yeah, nature and there's culture above that. And I even talked about that in respect to the open source world because uh, down at the nature level, you have Richard Stallman and Richard Stallman saying the nature of software is to be free, you know. And then above mm -hmm. that, you've got the culture level. You've got OSI and all the open source people saying. Well, it's really a matter of culture. We're all going to agree on uh, on all these other different uh, um, uh, uh, licenses, right? And then mm -hmm. above that is an infrastructure layer, which is where it gets put to use. And then above that, um, and and actually, the, I see the internet as being at that infrastructure layer, which is TCP/IP. Basically, it's TCP/IP. We're not going to, even if TCP/IP gets 
superseded by some other protocol. It It is so much, the model of it is so deeply ingrained at this point that we take for granted that we are all zero distance apart at no cost. I mean, that's what we are right now. Mm-hmm. We're yes. on Zoom, but Zoom's making money somewhere, somehow, but we're... You know, well, we I'm paying t- for a Zoom account now these days, so I, that's one way. There, yeah, I'm directly maybe, paying them because I'm like you for this one. I don't know. Probably. Yeah, like you, I'm in. I'm in Zoom all day. Like, yeah, uh, where it's become a. It's become they won somehow. Uh, I think the network effect probably, but uh, they, you know, they I mean, there's other technologies better. that work it's well. It's a simple and, thing. They were better and they iterated faster and yeah. cheaper and better. You know, I mean, by the time they, they came along, um, you know. The, 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 you know, they were, you know, they were ahead of the game, you know, yeah. in, a, in a simple way yeah. and they made it easy. And whereas Skype made it hard and, you know, exactly. WebEx and all these others made it hard and they wanted to, dread, you know, and they were enterprise cells, even though also Zoom was meant to originally as an enterprise thing, but it was too easy for everybody else to use. Yeah. So everybody just jumped on it. And of course yes. the pandemic happened and everybody had to go to school at home. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, and then which it, one of these things became... is easy? Like Zoom is now an entrenched part of the human experience now. Yeah, and I don't think that's yeah. going to change anytime soon. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of uh, kind of inevitable changes around the increasing irrelevance of physical location uh, were accelerated by the fact that uh, we were, the, the, you know, our response to uh, the pandemic has kind of, it just accelerated a lot of those changes that might have, I think, I think almost certainly would have happened anyway. Uh, but now suddenly remote work is a normal thing. And now that people have had a taste of it and say, hey, you know what? I can be just as or more productive at home. Uh, you know, why should my, you know. So anyway, we're the things aren't going to go backwards and Zoom's here to stay. And, and to your point, physical location is increasingly irrelevant. Well, it's, it's, it, it's especially if you live in a digital world like we are right now. I mean, yeah. you're in South Carolina. I'm in Indiana. You know, Catherine's in Houston. But it doesn't matter. You know? We're all in North America, though. It gets a little different when you're talking about global Zoom calls. The the Zoom I was on before this one was was in the woods of New Hampshire, me in Indiana, and the third one in Auckland, New Zealand. No sense of distance in any of them. In fact, the guy in Auckland, in order to speed things up, VPNed into D.C., because at the moment it was just work, it, it was working faster using a VPN to DC. You know that's fun. That's funny. Isn't that uh, weird? Yeah. It, not it's not actually weird if you think about it. Okay, so I'm about to nerd out on you a little bit. Uh, you might edit this out later. I don't know. But uh, so I work probably for not. A VoIP, I worked for a VoIP startup, uh, and uh, one of the things that I discovered was that UDP best effort delivery. Um, it the sound quality went up noticeably. And uh, the, the, the actual latency did not go up noticeably if you wrap your phone call in TCP and yeah. get ordered delivery. Because the internet, it, it, you know, UDP is for uh, unreliable connection, but our connections actually aren't unreliable. Uh, so if you just do order delivery and you do error checking and you do resends, you still don't get noticeable latency, but you get much, much higher sound quality. So no, I absolutely believe that if he wrapping it in a VPN and sending it, shooting it straight over to DC made it better. I, I absolutely it's, can. I technically I can envision exactly how that worked at the network layer, but that's, you know, like I said, I'm nerding out a little bit. Yeah. Well, and there's a, we've had other conversations about this, but there's a, um, uh, there might be just by because the arrangement of the of the pathways less buffer bloat, you know, which is where mm-hmm. you know uh, 
which is a big latency hit basically buffer bloat is just a mm-hmm. you know a way one of the one of the low high latency phenomena that are that are out there and, and uh, it's probably it's probably a part of that is that most almost all communications are in uh, tcp now so a, a lot of gear is optimized to keep tcp tcp flows uh you know low latency so, so here's a way maybe to get to a, a conclusion because i'm seeing something i hadn't seen before and i'm seeing it for the first time thank you and i might be wrong but i'm going to say it anyway okay so here in the physical world we know we know physical things have value i mean here's here's a glass i've got here you know this costs money if i i could sell it for five cents probably or something like that but it has some value and it's physical and we we understand that you know these things have intrinsic value nfts are a way to give the digital things intrinsic value of a sort maybe it's extrinsic i'm not sure what the intrinsic would be but it's a but it's a but it but it's a way of giving it a physical like yes. value so we can it, treat it the same way right I, I think that's i think you're on the right track it's 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 not that the thing didn't have intrinsic value before it's just that you've now got a method for capturing that value in a in a way that is almost that, that transfers around like a physical object uh, and, it has the properties of an object now and that you, that is huge. Go ahead, Catherine. Oh, I was going to say, but, but people are doing that now, right? I mean, so art art auction houses and, and art sales are being sold in this way, or the originals of you know some piece of art that was there were an art NFT was created. Something the originals are being sold, and um, or you know, I think there are applications where provenance that was, of course, previously you know, recorded through right. paper and, you know, whatever right. means available through, throughout, you know, the last you know, several hundred years, perhaps. But now we um, can have provenance that is unforgeable. Right. So, so, you know, there are applications in, in you know, in collecting and in art and wine, you know, a high-end yes. wine uh, could be tracked from grape all the way to concern, consumer. Oh, supply way. chain. Oh, su- supply chain management is a huge, like, Oh, it's going to be, it's right. going to be giant. This may be the place to go. So once we uh, get traction, so, so games is a mechanism to get people it, comfortable with and into and draw users to inspire people to create wallets on blockchain. Uh, that's really uh, the, the, where we're going. That's why we're in games right now, because it's, uh, it's a way to draw usage into the, the first thing you have to do is get people into the ecosystem. But once you do that, once you've proven the viability, once you once the economic incentive is there, we maybe supply chain is the next place to go. And you can say you can track from the cow to your steak and right. you know exactly what kind of life. Yeah, exactly. Like, Consider Kobe beef authentication had. and that kind yes, of thing. The exactly. type of things where, it, where there's a lot of money on the line. And I don't know. Sorry, I guess I'm showing my... Um... My inner food nerd, but if you've ever eaten Kobe <laughs> beef, you can literally see a nose print of the cow. Like they will bring it out to you and show it to you. And, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, you know, has applications here too. I, I, I feel like I hear a lot of talk about um, digital collectibles and digital, digital mm-hmm. objects, but really I think the more interesting applications tend to be those that are actual physical things. I think those are coming. I think, I think it's digital first. I think it's, I think that's the more low hanging fruit, but once all of these mechanisms are in place to do it, then it expands into physical. Then the DD, why, why should a local government have a piece of paper in a filing cabinet somewhere in a building that can burn down and the record can be lost? 
Like, why can't that be forever immutably on a public ledger? And now there's no, no one, it will never be lost who, who owns, who owns your house and who has owned it to the beginning of of the ledger. So in some ways, NFTs can make even the physical more real. Yes. Because there's, there's a digital, there's a digital side to them. It's almost like everything physical can be, can be digital and physical in a serious way. And everything that's digital can have a physical property. If it's a standalone digital thing, if it's a piece of art or if it's um, a poem, it could be anything. Um, But it's also a way, I mean, even say with a poem, okay, I can say, this is, I write a piece of poetry. This is the original. I've got that one. I don't mind if the whole world copies it, but I got the original. That's what this looks like. The record companies ought to be all over this in a way. It should be. I mean, your song could be an NFT that is unlocked by your payment. Uh, like I, I, there's just so many applications. There's actually an ebook that is available as an NFT uh, that was, was just done as an experiment, but it's a really interesting experiment where it's uh, you like the, uh, the, the key to unlock is unlocked by uh, you know, you sign something that costs a certain amount of uh, uh, Satoshi's, which is the underlying unit. It's like the pennies to the, to Bitcoin. Bitcoin mm-hmm. is the dollar Satoshi's are the pennies. Uh, but they go out to a lot more decimal places. Uh, so, so anyway, there are experiments like this are happening and they're, they're practical and they work and it's really interesting. Uh, and I think there's lots of economic incentive to, to continue to explore this and drive this. So, so I, go ahead, I don't want to go down this uh, huge tangent, but the, the song thing, it interests me because it occurs to me, are they reinventing DRM? Because once you've unlocked the thing that you, you've authenticated you that you have paid for it, um, you know, if it's truly unlocked, you should be able to put it anywhere and do anything, you know, and then what prevents you then from sharing it with all your friends? Otherwise, it's still. Yeah, I, 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 I think you get a more sane version of DRM. And there has to be a volunteer. Look, it's so icky. And, but yeah, I mean, the non-icky why DRM. shouldn't I be able to share it? Right. And why wouldn't you as an artist want me to share it? I mean, it, it, there's a there's a there's a portion of this that is about enticing people to pay by making it easy and by making it valuable and you know people what i think what got proven when you started to get 99 cent drm free mp3s and people actually started paying for them is that people want to reward the artists of the of of things that they like yes that's true uh and they all they wanted was that for it to be easy uh and, and once it was sufficiently easy and sufficiently painless and sufficiently inexpensive then the music industry was revolutionized and made better. Artists aren't making less money. If anything, there are more avenues for more artists to make more money. And I think we're going to see this progression continue. We're going to, it's going to become more, it's going to become easier and more painless uh, and more inexpensive and more people can get rewarded and it won't stop people from making money on off of their art. In fact, it will enable many more people to make much more money. So here, I I want to jump back for a second to, um, to to supply chain in the middle of the largest supply chains are like world trade is conducted mostly on oceans and it's conducted mostly through container cargo container cargo is the tcp of 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 the physical world i've never heard that analogy but i like it but it is and every container is if you look at a container on it it says at the end said to contain not contains, 
said to contain. And I just looked it up because I want to make sure I have this right. STC. It's it's a it's a it's a term of art in the container cargo shipping world, and it's a phrase used by the shipping company in the bill of lading when they descri- describing the goods loaded on board in a seagoing vessel in sealed containers, and for which the shipping company makes the necessary reservations in terms of the correct contents of those loading units. And at the end of a container, it might say, you know, um, five Nissan Sentras, or it may say, mm-hmm. you know, sweaters, or it may say, you know, a jewelry, or, or God knows what. But it, but it seems to me that this goes much, if this goes the way I gather you want it to go, and I think maybe all three of us want it to go, I'm not sure we we're hip enough for this yet, but it actually starts with it, it goes down the whole supply chain right that something gets manufactured you know it's been contracted for you know my, my wife used to be in the sweater business so she made sweaters in in asia so in 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 hong kong so but she would order these things into a number of specs and they would get made and they would get shipped in a container boat and they would arrive in san pedro or long beach and then it would go to her warehouse in los angeles and then they would have them in boxes but um, but when they get made, right, and a, maybe a QR code gets or a, or a barcode gets put on them at the factory, um, and they get loaded into, the, into boxes and they go into the boxes in the boat, there would be an NFT side of this thing, which is the the pre, a pre-sale instantiation of these things. It's the digital twin of each of these things that are made, right? But then at the at the sale point. You buy the sweater, it gets scanned. Maybe you put the QR code on. You have some way of your own of saying this is also mine. I ha- I know, the store knows, and maybe if I have with my permission, maybe even the maker knows. You know, if I want to have a relationship with the maker, you know, I've often I've even written about this a number of times in respect to picos that, um, you know, I I buy um, you know I I, I buy a you know here's a, a charger okay so. Uh, this is the best uh, battery charger made, as far as I know. It's made by a company called Lacrosse. There's Lacrosse. I'm, I'm showing people you can't hear it, but you can't see it. But because <laughs> I do a see it, I can confirm. But you can see it. But it's a yeah. But it's a Lacrosse makes. I've got three of these or four of these so far. But I would love to give them some feedback. I think they need a light behind this uh, this little mm. display here. I think they need a better explanation of what the little letters mean on here and why why some batteries get charged differently than others. What's the difference between slow and fast charging? Why is it that these will put more volts into these things? They, they come out of here, they're 1.2 volt things, but they end up being 1.5s. Why does this make it a 1.5 where the Duracell charge only takes it up to 1.2? Um, I want a relationship with this company, but if if this has a digital twin of itself that's unique to this this particular one, and I can... I once I buy it, I can now have a relationship with the lacrosse company that I would like to let them know I have it. It's in my possession now. It was in your possession. It was shipped through Amazon. It was shipped through some other party. There's a chain of custody that was in a sort of in play there. Not only does the supply chain better get better, but the actual quality of goods gets better, and the relationship between the first source and the final customer gets better. Or if, we, or if there's an intermediate seller, or say I bought it from Best Buy or some other thing like that, um, that could get better too. Or I might have a better relationship with them because they could replace it faster or whatever else is going on, right? But it strikes me that in a larger sense, what we're doing in several ways at once is sort of 
a improving goods and services, um, but especially goods, improving the not just improving, but giving us giving the digital world enough of the qualities of the physical to make it comprehensible to people at the same time as we give digital things, I mean, physical things, digital qualities they didn't have before that make buying, selling, owning, distributing, shipping, and the rest of it more sensible than it's been before, that make ownership easier mm-hmm. and easier to transfer. I sell yes. this, you know, um, you know, for whatever reason, I move because we live in three places, uh, crazily in three places at once. I may not need three of these anymore. I want to sell it. You know, I want to sell it to somebody. I could just easily put it on the market and, and then somebody says, I'll give you 20 bucks for it. I say, great. You know, here it goes. And now it's yours. And it, it's digital self goes with it there. It may know with my permission, I suppose, that I don't have it anymore. This other person has it. That's a good thing. Um, it just strikes me that there's, there is, implicit in this system, uh, in this schema, as I said earlier, I mean, that may still not be the right word for it, ecosystem, maybe a larger, maybe too broad, but there is in this set new world a, a, a better way to do business and a way to, better way to own, distribute 100%. the rest of it. Yeah, 100% true. And it goes really deep. It, it really makes you think about the nature of things, to your point about the underlying geology, the underlying structures of things, the fundamental principles on which things operate. You kind of have to go back and rethink your assumptions because a lot of them actually aren't true. They're, they're, they were necessary assumptions to get by in a world of a certain set of constraints. But mm-hmm. if we can loosen or remove some of those constraints, then those, a lot of those fundamental assumptions no longer apply. And we actually do get a chance to build a different kind of world. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this is this is what really fascinates me. This is what is really interesting to me is to have a shot at kind of helping to build that that new world where, you know, I mean, if you if you take the richest person in the world 100 years ago, they would they would they would not be able to fathom living like a lower middle class person today. The amount, the, no, the amount of luxury, it would be unthinkable to. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, they had no air so, conditioning. You know, right. Um, so. So, but but that world was built by people who were saying, what if it was different? Uh, And that's kind of what we're doing today. And uh, to go back to kind of my, my dot-com metaphor here, because I think we're right at the point right before the first dot-com bubble burst 2001, Mm -hmm. uh, because we were, both of us were in the midst of that. Uh, And uh, we, it was, you know, there was a lot of gold rush mentality. Every, oh, throw money, throw money into it because there's a chance of astronomical return. Uh, and that's yeah. the exact same. That's the gold rush mentality. And mm-hmm. if I don't get into it, I'm going to miss out. I have no chance. Uh, and then the, and then the bubble burst. And then a lot of people were disappointed. And then you had people like Paul Krugman saying things like the internet has no more value than a fax machine. Uh, and people still take them seriously for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, but I think some things is like, like there every, was a disillusion. Like, like everybody right? is there. He says some things that are sensible. Yeah, and some things that I didn't understand uh, the iPad when it first came out. So I'm just, yeah. So, so, <laughs> I don't so but, it, but there was a, a period of disillusionment where people were like, okay, it's not yeah. like now we can take a sensible look at what it actually is. But the fact that some people crash and burn and the fact that there's a lot of like fraud and scams out there, uh, absolutely does not mean that there's not gold in them their hills oh yeah no right and and well and i mean i have 
I have to credit to you. I did not. I'm not sure. I, I still not sure I fully understand NFTs, but I understand them a heck of a lot better than I did before. Thanks to you, this is really the best explanation of an NFT that I've heard so far, and it's, um, you know, and, and in a way, I would I would I would describe it as it it, it it's a way of 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 truly giving digital goods a, a physical property or some a physical like property, and also can give it a physical property digital. A digital instantiation as well. That's yeah, it can interesting. Be. It can, it can be. be. It can be a hundred. It can be those things a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, and that that helps flesh out the world that we have. It's kind of like, um, you know, a, a, a good friend of mine. I, we were talking about about the digital transition, which is transition is the right word for it. But I'm a big fan of Marshall McLuhan, who says every new technology works us over completely, and and that we live in an environment created by it. There's an environment that was created by movable type. There's an environment that was created by, by automobiles, by railroads before that, and by electricity, by television, by radio, and now by the internet, or by, by digital technology plus the internet. It's really ICs plus the internet and, and code and those all together. But that's, that's a digital environment. And I, we were talking with this guy about what is it, is this bigger than any of these things, these other things that came earlier, is this transition like the biggest one? And he said, I think it's the biggest thing since oxygenation, which happened 2 billion years ago, <laughs> which is... Well, that's a bold claim. I'm not sure I would go claim. that far, but... But, 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 he, but here, here's how it is, I think, because I think what's happening now is that, I mean, the conundrum we've been dealing with is that is that we haven't been able to make sense of the digital world in physical terms yet. It's like, I mean, here we are in three different places, zero distance apart. There's no, di there's no distance. There's no gravity. We don't know. We know a lot to, we know what to do with it, but metaphorically, it's not like anything, right? It's, it's an example only of itself. You know, it's like that old joke, you know, the, the, the test question of describe the universe and give three examples, right? You know, there is no other example of this, right? <laughs> There's only one of these and it's the digital world. And we're, and we're Craig Burton, who's maybe you should have on the show sometime because he's brilliant. He made Novell happen in the, in the, back in the eighties and he's very insightful. And, um, uh, and, and, and he said, Oh God, I wasn't going to quote him on something, but, um, Oh yeah, that he said we have a new world here, and we haven't terraformed it yet. We're terraforming this world, and and you know the first wave, the dot com boom, second wave, Web two point which is basically the industrial model all over again. We've mm -hmm. got you know Bezos and Gates and and you know Sergi and and yep. uh, and Larry, you know great guys. Um, I've met them all. They're, they're they're not bad people, but they are the Andrew Carnegie and 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 um, and Henry Ford of our time, right? We made the industrial model all over again. Mm -hmm. and, yes, we did. And and now we're ready for something else. And yes, we are. Based on our understanding of the world, by being able to create new forms of value, other than just trying to have giant companies owning our lives, yes. that to me is sort of like the big thing here. And and that's why I say this is Internet 4.0. Because the, the proliferation of cloud is Internet 3.0, in my opinion. Uh, well, the, well, an earlier makes... guest, a guest of ours, Dr. Uh, uh, 
Augustine Fu is he's on five, so he's making five. Okay. So well, there, but you could nonetheless. Okay, it's fair. it's it's a change. But, it's a shift. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, this is, is this is like really bringing, and the reason that I think this is the one that's going to really stick is because now we have created these economic incentives uh, for this model and to build things on this model uh, yeah. that solves a lot of different problems. Uh, and I think that is what makes it as close to inevitable as things get as inevitable as open source was and as inevitable then as cloud was uh, yeah. it, it, it is you building it, you build model on top of model on top of model. And as long yeah. as we don't have a major, like, you know, backwards step, like the dark ages, I think that, that we're, we're on track to go take it to the next level. Yeah. 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 Well, we have been at this for <laughs> an hour and a half. And it's funny coming into this, both Catherine and I were, we're talking on Slack about we're both wasted <laughs> and uh, um, yeah. we've been on Zoom all day, but this is a really exciting show. This has been really yeah, great. I, so well, I appreciate I, that. I appreciate that. I like blowing people's minds because, because, you know, I, I, really, I'm just a little, I'm just the tiniest bit ahead of the curve. I'm just the tiniest bit ahead of the curve and having thought through some of this. Uh, but there's like, a lot of it is almost self-evident. And once you ring the bell, the bell doesn't get unrung. Uh, and yeah. I love ringing. I love ringing that bell. I love ringing that bell. You've done a great job. Yeah, I've just, I'm sitting back and just listening the whole time. I, you know, apologies <laughs> for being so quiet, but I'm just letting listen. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, next time, next time I'd like to talk about art more and stuff but uh yeah sure but yeah uh, maybe hey, the title is a uh, is a uh, we finally understand what nfts are <laughs> we finally understand <laughs> nfts after much uh yeah yeah i mean i you know you Covering. come up with names for things and then it's like well sometimes the name can be misleading and nft sounds so esoteric and disconnected yeah. from anything real that i think you, you just have to make it as concrete as possible uh, mm. And then suddenly you you compare it to like the uh, property deed or a a ticket, a plane sure, ticket, and yeah. suddenly people start to like it starts to click. I've actually yeah. wondered why you know title companies haven't. Embra- I mean, maybe some have somewhere, but why ha- they haven't you. embraced you know blockchain technology by now? Maybe, maybe it's reification or reify, you know, to reify something to make it real in a way. I mean, con- concretize is too too many syllables, too Latin. Um, but reify is, you know, based on real might work. Just think about that. We'll we'll come up. So so our our homework for the next episode is to come up with with the appropriate buzzword. Something's not a three. You know, it's funny. I, I, a thousand years ago when I had a a advertising agency in North Carolina, uh, our job for a client was to come up with a better label for the machine, the cash machine on the outside of the bank than ATM because <laughs> automated teller machine, nobody even knows what ATM meant. And we didn't end up getting the, uh, winning this. Another, another, um, another firm got it with the name Outer Bank, the Outer Bank, which is a great line because especially in North Carolina, that's yeah, the Outer Bank. Yeah, close to the Outer Banks. Which, which makes sense. But here's the funny thing about it. ATM is actually what everybody calls it. Yeah, you know? so, yeah it really is. So I, it's its own meaning. Occasionally yeah. you're stuck with it. It's kind of like you're stuck with it. 
Yeah, well, it's kind of like I, I always made this argument about DevOps. Like DevOps was literally made by taking Dev and Ops and having them work together, mm. but it went so much farther beyond that. It became a true lean manufacturing implementation for software. Yeah, uh, yeah. and and now it's like, but that doesn't matter because we're to DevOps. It, we just now got people to like accept the term. Like, why are we we try to abandon it? And nobody was going to take up anything else anyway. So. Uh, I think NFT is the same way. Like it's yeah, the, it's for better or worse, the term is stuck. It's, yeah, it's that's it's what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's 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 out of the oven. It's done. You're not going <laughs> to. You know, that's it. Well, oh, great. Cool. Well, thank you so yeah. much for for being on with us today, and um, and for everyone listening. Thank you for for listening. For yeah. uh, and right however back, long it you know. it turns out to be. <laughs> and we will well, see you next I time. think longer might be better in this case. I think yeah. It's, uh, it's a time to go long. <laughs>